Well, thank you again to our worship team for uh, so capably leading us before the throne this morning. As you are finding your way uh, back to your seats, you can go ahead and turn in a Bible this morning to Acts chapter 2. We're in verses 22 through 41 this morning, a a long portion. We're just going to look at it it briefly. But again, Acts chapter 2, 22 through 41, it's also printed for you on your bulletin on pages 7 and 8. But before we read together, uh, let me pray once more. Heavenly Father, once again we, we come before you and are grateful for how good you are to us. As we heard in Psalm 103 earlier, as we were called into worship, uh, we are people who have been uh, called to forget not your benefits, to forget not all the ways that you have blessed us. And so again, Lord, we can think this morning in our lives, and you have been so good to us, so kind, so generous, doing for us, Lord, what we can never do for ourselves, blessing us far more than we deserve. And so God, again, we praise you. Lord, we also thank you that you are the God who who speaks to us. And so in a moment, Lord, as we do read your word, we pray that you would do just that. That again, through these stories told so long ago, through this inspired word of yours, Lord, we pray that we would again hear your voice. That your spirit would, would speak through these words, Lord, through these pages. And again, remind us of Christ. Remind us again of your grace. So again, Lord, we do now pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So again, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 41, it says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent 
to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Well, as we continue our series this morning in the book of Acts, we not only continue along in chapter 2, but we continue along, if you notice, in what was the very first Christian sermon uh, ever preached. A message, as we see here, that was preached by the Apostle Peter, and that makes sense because if you know the book of Acts, you know that the first half of this book really revolves primarily around Peter and his ministry, and then in the second half of the book, we'll see that that focus shift more and more to the Apostle Paul. But here in chapter 2, again, we see another first. We've begun to see this now all throughout the text, and we'll see this, of course, further. This is the first church, the first gathering of Christians, that again, this is where we trace our own lineage, our own history as a church back to. And so we get, again, see here another first. We see the first Christian sermon. And of course, this follows on the heels of the church itself being birthed. So again, if you think of the church as a living organism, just like a child is birthed, is born, and then learns uh, her first words or his first words and begins to speak, the same thing is true now in the life of the church. The church is birthed through the gospel, that Christ himself uh, ascends back to heaven and now commissions and sends those of us who follow after him to continue on his ministry, and the church is born. But the church now speaks And the word that she is called to speak or preach is primarily, as we know, the gospel, the good news of Christ. And so we see that here with Peter. He is now presenting for the very first time the first Christian sermon here at Pentecost. And we know that these words are following on this miraculous and incredible event known as the coming of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which again came in power upon the followers. And as we know, this coming of the Holy Spirit was this inexplicable, you know, uh, one-of-a-kind, miraculous event where those who were gathered could hear the word preached, the gospel preached, uh, in their own language. We saw earlier in the chapter, you know, men and women from the, the, the far reaches of the Roman Empire gathering there in Jerusalem and hearing the apostles preach and hearing them preach, hearing it in their own tongues and their own language. And so again, it was this reversal, if you will, of the Tower of Babel. If in Genesis 11, the nations were scattered and fractured, well, here in Acts 2, they're being brought back together again in the gospel and because of Christ Jesus. And so what Peter's doing here is on the heels of that, what seems to be inexplicable event, what seems to be this miraculous event, Peter now begins to preach. And like a good preacher, he doesn't just give his opinions, but he explains scripture. And he explains that what they're seeing before their eyes actually has a biblical foundation, has a biblical explanation. 
And so as his sermon opened up, and we began to look at it last week, again, in the first half, in the middle section here of chapter 2, Peter connects what's happening at Pentecost to that mysterious and, and, and veiled prophecy of Joel. And we saw last week that Joel was pointing forward, and Peter now identifies that when this was happening, it would signal the last days. It would signal that this is now the turning point of history. And there's a, a, maybe a brief aside that needs to be made there. When we say that we live in the last days, and when Peter himself identified history as being in the last days, or being in the fourth quarter, if you will, on the 18th green of, of human history, he's basically just saying we live on this side of the cross. As we know, there's been people all throughout history who, who try to, you know, take the prophecies of Daniel and of Joel and these obscure minor prophets, and they take Revelation, and they develop this gigantic chart, you know, and they put it over each other, and you have to, like, subtract six and divide by three and put, you know, the... the Pythagorean theorem in there somewhere, and stir, and voila, what do you have? A definitive date. Christ is coming back on March 17th, 2026, right? And what happens? It leads people astray, and people get worked up, or there's just this fervor of in the last days, it's going to be this, you know, cataclysmic kind of, you know, left behind sort of saga, and, you know, people are going to get sucked out of their cars, and it's going to be, you know, everyone just kind of gets themselves into this frenzy, Right? Well, again, to live in the last days isn't a source of frenetic kind of anxiety, but rather it's the realization that at the cross, human history has now pivoted. That you can really divide human history into two main categories, before the cross and after the cross. When the cross happens, when Calvary happens, when Christ comes, he is at that point turning back the curse upon humanity. He has made atonement for human sin. And now we live in those last days, the age of the church, in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And so again, whether it was back then in first century AD, first century Palestine, or whether it's today in 21st century North America, we're all in the last days, do you see? We're all in that final chapter of redemptive history. And so again, it's not a source then of, of worry or anxiety, and it's certainly not a source for people like me to stand up here and try to identify, you know, the exact date or, 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 or read the signs and make predictions, okay? None of that, right? Instead, it's to remind us that God is on the move, that he is now working to finally establish his reign and rule forever uh, through the gospel, but how he does it and when he does it is a mystery. No one knows the day or the hour, says Christ, except for the Father in heaven. And so again, in the meantime, what do we do? We hope. We pray, and we, we press forward. So again, Peter, though, connects things to the last days uh, in Joel and says, this is what the sign will be, that the Spirit will be poured out without measure upon your sons and your daughters, your men and your women, your, your young people and your old people, that it will be poured out upon all of those who claim Christ, and we see this happening. Well, today, though, in this section of Peter's sermon, we have him continuing. And what happens is that as he moves from the what, which is the Holy Spirit has been given, and he moves from the why, 
which was to signal the last days and fulfill prophecy. In these verses, 22 through 41, we begin to see now the who. Not the band in the 70s, okay, or 60s. But we begin to see the who, right? Who caused all of this to happen? We've seen the what, the Holy Spirit's been given. We see the why, to signal the last days. But now here we see the who caused it to happen. And of course, the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord who is now gifting his people like a good and benevolent king. He is gifting his people with the spoils of his victory. Paul, later in Ephesians, will speak about that kind of language. The ascended Christ who now gives and divvies out the spoils of his victory to his people. And the primary gift here that he's giving out, again, is the spirit, the comforter, the advocate uh, that we have. But because many in the crowd who have been gathered that day are still struggling to believe and understand, Peter here steps back and he sets the giving of the Spirit in its greater gospel context. Because again, remember, who's there that day? In Jerusalem, you have Jews who have been gathered. And what will Paul later say? That the, that the gospel can be a stumbling block um, to the Jewish ear. And to the Gentile who's also been gathered that day, it's foolishness. And so Peter here steps back and he again puts the Spirit, the giving of the Spirit, into its greater gospel context and shows that it is the icing on the cake of this incredible work of God that he is doing through Christ. And so again, because it's a large section of text, we could look at a lot of things. We'll have to look at it in multiple parts. But this morning, I want us just to see three things, three big ideas from this text. And the three things are this. There is a definite plan of God. There is a definite plan of God. There is a death-defeating grace of God. There is a death-defeating grace of God. And thirdly, there is a duty and response the Holy Spirit produces. Again, a definite plan of God, a death-defeating grace of God, and a duty and response the Holy Spirit produces in our hearts. So let's just look at those uh, in turn. The first, there is a definite plan of God. We see this in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Some of my... Um, Favorite movies, even though they are somewhat cheesy and contrived, I'll admit. Some of my favorite movies are the Rocky movies, okay? The Rocky series. Now, I refuse to sort of acknowledge the later ones. Rocky V never existed. The new ones I haven't seen. They might be good for all I know. But I love like the original Rocky movies. Rocky I, Rocky II, Rocky III, and Rocky IV, okay? In Rocky I and II, he fights Apollo Creed. Carl Weathers, great actor, right? In Rocky IV, he fights Ivan Drago, who's the, you know, it's like the Cold War movie, right? Uh, he's the undefeatable, you know, Russian, like, cyborg-type boxer, okay? Well, in Rocky III, though, he fights a guy named Clubber Lang, who is played by the one-of-a-kind Mr. T, 
okay? Mr. T. And there's high drama there, okay, because what happens is that Rocky gets comfortable and he ends up losing his title uh, to Clubber Lang. And so Apollo Creed comes back and he trains Rocky and you have some of those like really awkward Rocky scenes where they're like, you know, running on the beach shirtless and like hugging each other. And it's like this, you know, just kind of silly 80s montage of like training, all right? But what happens eventually is that Rocky will rematch Clubber Lang and he, he, he employs this tactic, though, that is baffling. He employs this tactic that's just baffling. He allows Clubber to come after him and to punch and to punch and to punch, to absorb all these you know, body blows, okay, until what happens? Clubber Lang tires himself out, okay, and then Rocky makes his move, and it's, of course, a dramatic you know, knockout like they always are, and it's, you know, exciting, and I get goosebumps talking about it. You know, it's kind of weird, all right? And it's awesome. It's just awesome, okay? It's like Americana. I love, love the Rocky movies, okay? But what's happening there is that Rocky, it's part of a larger plan that he has. Again, he appears to be losing the whole fight. He appears to be losing blow after blow, but it's all part of a larger plan where then he becomes victorious. And I know that's ridiculous, to an extent. But in a way, it's a helpful way to think about what happens in the gospel. What happens in the way that Christ accomplished our salvation. And Peter alludes to that here. That's what he's doing. Jesus is the Son of God. He demonstrates that through his entire earthly ministry, miracle after miracle. He is the one. He is the incarnate word. He is the one who spoke the world into existence. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is the Lord over all. And yet what happens? He's crucified at the hands of man that he created. He hangs on a tree made of wood that he himself spoke into existence. And so it's this great paradox if you will. He is crucified by humans over whom he is infinitely more powerful. In other words, what's happening in the gospel is that Christ appears to lose. He appears to be upset in shocking fashion. And yet, what we begin to understand, and of course what Peter has to explain to the first hearers, who are themselves still trying to process this, is that this is the very tactic he, he intended to employ. That Christ took the best that the devil could throw at him. He took the strongest punch that the world and human wickedness and sin could muster. And what did he do? He absorbed it into himself. He absorbed it into himself, the full fury and hell that Satan could muster. And again, what Peter does here, though, is he then puts it in context and reminds them and reminds us again today that this never caught God off guard. That God wasn't this boxer who made a mid-match adjustment. He wasn't this, you know, uh, this sports team that was shockingly upset and didn't see it coming. But rather, all of it, even the way he was crucified, even the way his ministry went, even the fact that it seemed like he was losing at first, all of this was actually according to a definite plan that he had before the foundation of the world. There was a foreknowledge that stood behind all of it, all of it, a plan, again, that the Lord would use for greater good, again, to set humanity free, to ultimately make an atonement for sin. 
And you see, this is so important for us to remember and again to, to, to focus on then or now because it speaks of the utter sovereignty of God. Think about that phrase again Peter says, that this, he was delivered up according to the definite, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And again, that's a reminder to us, whether we lived then or whether we live today, that there is a God, there is a Lord who is sovereign over every single thing that happens in our lives, every single thing that happens in this world, every single thing that happens on the news and, and, and just overwhelms us or discourages us, even when we can't understand it, even when we can't trace God's hand, we can trust him. We can trust him because he is sovereign over all. And it's not like he's just making lemonade from lemons. He's not some magician who kind of you know, takes what he's given, any article you hand to him, and then you know, makes something better out of it. He's not some genie, but he's actually the God who stands over the whole thing and says, no, it's all according to my plan. None of this is happening outside of my purview or outside of my providence. But secondly, it also reminds us that this is good news for the guilty conscience. And you might say, well, how, how, how do I get there? This is good news for the guilty conscience, because who is Peter speaking to? Peter is speaking to those who, in some way, may have actually been part and parcel of crucifying the Lord Jesus. He says this here. He was delivered up into the hands of lawless men, okay? And even if the people here weren't necessarily a direct part of that, they might have been you know, guilty by association, so to speak, but either way, he's saying, you know, there's people here who were literally part of crucifying the Lord Jesus. And his words, of course, you know, cut them to the heart. That's what the text literally says. And that's what Peter wants to happen. He's convicting his audience, and it's working. But then what does he come in with afterwards? He says, but even when it comes to crucifying the Lord, what is there? There's grace. There's forgiveness. There's repentance that can lead to faith, that can lead to baptism of the Holy Spirit. Wow. I mean, what, what magnitude of mercy that even for those who put Christ on the cross, there's forgiveness. And of course, we know that from Christ himself. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so again, how does that comfort us this morning? We all bring a guilty conscience at some point before God. All of us. All of us. And yet there's a reminder here that our sin never has permission, so to speak. Our sin never has an excuse. But even our sin, God uses for a greater glory, for a greater purpose. No sin of ours the most heinous of sin cannot thwart the Lord's purposes and plans and cannot thwart his goodness and mercy. And that's good news for the guilty conscience this morning. But thirdly, what we also see in this, in this first idea that there's a definite plan of God is, again, just an encouragement that, that if this is how God accomplished salvation, that if the cross was paradoxical, in that way, what appeared to be losing was actually winning. 
What appeared to be death was actually the gateway to life. What appeared to be forsaken was actually, means now we can be accepted. If salvation was accomplished that way, then it means the rest of the Christian life also bears that same motif. That same motif. That darkness might befall you at times. That what appears to be losing might, might befall you at times. That trial and adversity will come. That the text elsewhere tells us that we all have a cross to bear at one time or another. And yet, what's our hope? That just like God saved us, paradoxically, in the gospel, down is up and up is down. Death is life and life is death, right? There's this paradox in the gospel. Well, that's true in our salvation. It's also true in our sanctification. That God will sometimes use those low points in our lives. He will sometimes use those valleys in our lives to do his greatest work and to make his mercy known uh, that much more, more brightly. God has a definite plan. He uses it. He never leaves you or forsakes you. But then secondly, there is a death-defeating grace of God. And this really comes in verses 24 through following. We won't look at all of those, but if you look again in 24, it said God raised him up. So even though Christ was crucified, what did God do? God raised him up, and he loosed the pangs of death. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for Christ to be held by death. You'll have to forgive my silly illustrations, but if you ever watched The Letterman Show, uh, the David Letterman, you know, the late show with David Letterman, it used to be on, on CBS, they had a segment, a ridiculous segment, called Will It Float? Okay, Will It Float? And it was literally this ridiculous segment where Letterman would call his assistant in and they would just pick some random object, like a, like a block of Velveeta cheese, literally, okay? Or they would take like, um, you know, one of these palm trees in a pot back here. Or they would take like a, they took a tower fan one time that you have like in your office that just swivels. Ridiculous everyday objects and they would throw it in a tank of water, <laughs> okay? And the whole game was, will this object float or not? Will it float? Okay, yes or no. And if you know Letterman, he's always dry, understated humor. So they found it to be hilarious, but it's a ridiculous game. Okay, will it float? And of course, some objects would sink, and they'd be obvious, and some would float, and they'd be obvious, and there'd be some that would surprise you. For instance, things made of plastic, right, usually float, and even things that look heavy will still float. Again, will it float? Okay, this ridiculous game, all right? Or think of if you've ever been in a swimming pool, if you're in a swimming pool, take a basketball, right, that's inflated, and try to hold it underwater for a long period of time. What happens? It shoots back up to the surface, right? You can hold it down for as long as you want, but the minute you let go, it shoots back up to the surface, or if there's, if there's too much air in it, no matter what you try to do to get it under the water, you still can't. It's just, it's too buoyant, right? And it'll eventually shoot back up to the surface. I know it's ridiculous, but this is the image to keep in mind as we consider what Peter says in verse 24. Though Jesus died in the hands of lawless men, though he was crucified and buried, not only was it part of God's plan, 
but it was literally not possible for death to ultimately overcome him. Like a, like a buoyant object cannot be held down in the water without it propelling back to the surface, that's what's happening in the gospel. It's a physical, it's an existential, however you want to categorize it, impossibility, a redemptive impossibility for death to have had the final word over the author of life, for darkness to have the final word over the true light, for evil to ultimately triumph over good. It's impossible. It's impossible. (coughs) And again, why is this important for us to remember? Because again, think of the confidence that you have. Think of the confidence you have in the laws, so to speak, that have been written into the creation. What goes up must do what? Come down. Law of gravity, right? An object that has been in motion will stay in motion until what? Acted upon by an outside force, right? The law of inertia, okay? When you got here this morning, you had every confidence that that pew that's drilled into the floor would hold you. You didn't even think twice about it. You sat down and found relief for your sore back or your sore knees or whatever, right? You just sat down and you knew it would hold you. Why? The law of matter. You know that thing is going to hold you right there. You have faith in that chair, perhaps a greater faith than things we should have faith in, right? Well, here, Peter is reminding us that, again, in an even more fundamental way, there is a law, so to speak, written into God's creation, into his definite plan, that death will not ultimately overcome life in the economy of God. That it's impossible for death to have held the Savior of the world. That darkness in the law of God, darkness in the economy of God, will not ultimately ever triumph over light. Evil will not ever triumph over Good And again, the cross and the empty tomb are those stark reminders that tell us that each and every day. And again, that's good news for us. That's good news for us. Because again, we can survey our lives, we can survey this world, and we can get discouraged. But there is this reminder of the empty tomb that stands for all humanity to see, the empty tomb of Christ. And it's that evergreen reminder, that unchanging reminder that ultimately good will triumph over evil, life will triumph over death because of that death-defeating grace of God. And so how do we respond to this then? That's our third point. How do we respond to this goodness of God? Well, thirdly, there's a duty and response to the Holy Spirit will create in us. And again, this is found in verses 37 till the end. When they heard this, verse 37, when they heard all this that Peter had said, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You see, this response 
This response is the sign and the mark of the true believer. This is the mark and the sign. Because as we know, this is an uncommon reaction. That when the world hears these claims of Christ, and the world hears these claims of God, most pawn it off, right? As lunacy, fairy tales, uh, too good to be true. Again, Paul will tell us later in his letters that to the, to the Jew, the gospel can be a stumbling block. To the Gentile, it can, be, it can be foolishness. But again, regardless of background or ethnicity or demographic, we can look in our own society and see these reactions, right? Um, people pawning off the gospel as foolishness or, 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 again, fairy tales. Again, recall that we live in changing times, but some things remain the same. And yet here, in this uncommon reaction, what do we see? We see the Holy Spirit does his work. And he actually produces in the hearts of those who have been gathered this repentant posture, this U-turn in their life, this existential U-turn of forsaking of what was behind, of forsaking of former ways of living, and then pressing forward to now what is ahead. And belief takes root in their life and then it's followed by baptism, right? This outward sign of this inward change. And again, for an adult, this happens, you know, if they come to conversion as an adult. But what does Peter also tell us? That this promise, this life-changing promise, is also for the children of believers. And so that outward sign may precede faith if, again, these are for children born into the household of believing parents. And that's why we practice infant baptism here uh, at Lake Osborne for the children of believing parents. But in either case, right, whether the sign precedes faith for a child or whether it comes after faith for an adult, what do we see here? This is the response that God desires. This is the response that he had planned before the foundation of the world. And so again, if you are someone then who has come to faith in Christ, if you are someone who is a believer and who has been gathered here in worship this morning, what do we remember? What do we remember? That just as God had a definite plan for his son and the gospel, he has a definite plan for you. And it included bringing you to faith. It included that U-turn in your life. It included marking you with his spirit, covering you, baptizing you with his spirit, and now sending you, sending me to do what Peter does here to preach, to proclaim, to again remind all of us who will listen that there is a God who came down. There is a God who rose. There is a God who is coming again. But his plan can be for everyone. His plan includes everyone who is willing to follow after him in faith. And so again, that is the duty and the response of our lives, not just then, but now. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your foreknowledge. We thank you for your definite plan. Lord, we thank you that it includes even folks like us. Lord, we look at that text and we marvel that at the preaching of your word, 3,000 souls were converted that day, followed after you. And Lord, that is your testimony, though. All throughout history, men and women being gathered from their previous way of life, being gathered from the four winds, and then set on a new course of salvation. And so again, Lord, we thank you that that is true of us this morning. 
that for those who have placed their faith in this risen Lord, that is our destiny, that is our hope, that is our testimony as well. And so, Lord, again, thank you for reminding us through the book of Acts that though the times change, the church remains. Your grace and mercy remain because your Savior, Christ Jesus, the one given for us, remains. And so, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and we ask that you would continue to encourage us on our journey as we do live in these last days between that first arrival of Christ and his second arrival. Would you encourage us? Would you use us? Would you send us to be agents of your mercy and grace? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.